All right, let's go to this very last church, the church in Laodicea, Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. So remember, Jesus is referring to himself. I know your deeds, that you're neither cold or hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich in white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. So remember, he's, he's giving them a solution to the very thing that he just said this is a problem. Those of whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, all of us are probably familiar with the nursery rhyme of Humpty Dumpty. Everybody remember Humpty Dumpty? Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men could not put Humpty back together again. And so when Humpty Dumpty fell off this wall, you will notice that he, he called for all that the world had to offer, the best the world had to offer, all the king's horses, all the king's men, but they couldn't put him back together again. It would be in our lingo, we would say Humpty Dumpty fell off the wall, you know, had a great fall, and he called you know, the White House, Congress, the military, and none of them could put him back together again. Right, so that, that would be more in keeping with our lingo. But the tragedy of the story is that none of these human powers could put Humpty Dumpty's life back together again. And apparently, Mr. Dumpty had no biblically functioning church that he could call in order to come and help him put his life back together again. And really, that is why God has established the local church. That's why the local church is so vitally important to our society and to our world is because it is the only entity that God has developed and instituted to be that, on that kind of rescue mission in helping people put their lives back together again because I can assure you that you don't have to look very far. Everybody's lives are like Humpty Dumpty. They've fallen off a wall and things are shattered and things are a mess and they're not sure where to go, who to turn to in order to put it all back together again. And so we have found that human institutions of power and influence cannot fix society's deepest problems nor address people's deepest needs. That's where the gospel of Jesus Christ comes in. And we're, we're the proclaimers of the gospel of Christ, right? So if you call a government entity, uh, they may be able to help you with some things, like with food and clothing or shelter and some other things, but they cannot put your life back together again because it is a spiritual issue, and God is the one who addresses those issues in the life and the realm of humanity. So I may be able to feed a person who is hungry, 
But listen, if they never receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior of their life, their life is still going to be a mess, and they're still going to be spending eternity separated from God because they have not received Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And so this is, this is the reality that is brought to bear on our, our world in which we live, is that the most important institution on earth that has been commissioned by our sovereign Lord to represent himself in history is the local church. The Bible says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. You've heard me say this many, many times, salvation, sozo, to save, to heal, and to deliver, to put people's lives back together again. And so God designed the church. So when the church is strong, culture is positively impacted. When the church is weak, its influence deteriorates, and so does culture. When the church is strong, its members recognize their eternal purpose and the church moves forward. When the church is weak, its members tend to wander around in confusion about what it is we're supposed to be doing while we're here on planet Earth. So I want us to look at the church at Laodicea because God's going to answer the question for us, what are we to be doing and how are we to be doing it? Why is the church, local church important? Why is the gospel message so important and why should we be leveraging it for God's kingdom purposes. And so Jesus, his beef with this church, as you've read, is simply they're lukewarm, right? They're not hot, they're not cold, they're just like lukewarm. So when Jesus starts out of the gate uh, in his um, assessment of the church, he describes for them the characteristics of a lukewarm church. He defines the characteristics of a lukewarm church in verse 14, Notice how Jesus reveals himself. This is very telling when Jesus reveals himself. He says, I am the amen. Uh, that that's, means uh, a statement of affirmation, a statement of authentication. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am, I am, amen. I am the amen. I am the word that has become flesh. So you notice on our walls, we have the, some Hebrew names of God, like God is Jehovah Jireh. And so Jesus in his statement, I am I'm the amen, means that because Jesus is word become flesh, that Jehovah Jireh can be known to us, right? We, God is our provider is what that name means. Jehovah Shalom, God is my peace. The reason why God's peace can become a reality for me is because Jesus is my amen, right? He is my savior. He is my Lord. He is my shepherd. He is my guide. He is God's Jehovah Sedeknu, he is the one who has made me righteous in the eyes of God. And so Jesus is revealing to his church simply this, everything you need is found in me, right? Everything you need is found in me. This relationship, let's say this table tonight represents Christ. And so Jesus is saying, this is to be the center of your life. I'm not to be a slice in a, you know, a piece of pie, just a slice of the piece of pie. I'm to be the whole pie. I'm to be the center. Everything is to flow out of this relationship. So if you want to experience the names of God and what they represent personally in your life, in your time of need, you're going to find that centered in me. And then he goes on to say, I am what? I am the beginning of creation. And here's where religions divide. The beginning is not a reference to Jesus being created by God. It is a reference of Jesus being the source of creation. All, in the Old Testament, all throughout the New Testament, 
The Bible says that Jesus created everything and everything was created for his, his pleasure. You look at Romans eleven thirty six and Colossians 1, 16 and 17. He is the amen, faithful and true source of all creation. And he says, I am the ultimate ruler of creation. And so when we use the name of Jesus, for example, when you pray, how do you normally conclude your prayer? In Jesus' name. Why, you, why do we say in Jesus' name? Because there is power in that name. There is majesty in that name. There is might in that name. You are saying, in Jesus' name, amen, I am in agreement. I'm coming in agreement with the ruler and the creator of all things and the one who holds all things together because he is the source of my confidence. He's the source of my righteousness. He's the source of everything I need in life and in eternity. And so when Jesus, his name comes into a situation, things can change. There's a power in that name that can change many, many things. It can change a person's life. It can change the trajectory of their lives. When Jesus says to the church who had become self-righteous, they had become self-seeking, they had become self-confident, Notice what he said. You say, I don't have need of anything. You say, well, we've got this, and we've got this, and that, and the other. We have need of nothing from you. Jesus says, that is a false facade. You need everything from me. And so he is addressing a church that's been on a downward slide. And I've put this on your outline. There's a reason why these churches are connected the way they are in the order that they are. Remember what Jesus said to the church at Ephesus, you left your first love. You've put this relationship on the back burner of your life. You've put it on the peripheral of your life. You've, you've just made me a slice in multiple slices of your pie. It's really not the center focus of your life. I'm really not at the center of your existence. I'm just kind of there. And whenever you do that, things begin a downward spiral. And so when you come to Smyrna, um, though Jesus had nothing negative to say to that church, when you're on a downward slide, they were very spiritually sensitive to those around them. When you're on a downward slide, you become spiritually insensitive. See, when Jesus is no longer at the center of my life, guess what is? Self. It's self. So the entire Christian life is built around, will I surrender my life to Jesus or am I going to live for self? It always comes down to that, no matter what it is. And as I surrender my life to Christ, and as I surrender my day, and as I surrender my resources, my times and talents, and, and everything that I have and everything I possess, as it's filtered through this relationship, then Jesus begins to release that upon the lives of others so it's not just for me, but I exist also for others as I develop the fruit of the Spirit. Well, what is fruit on a tree for? It's not just for, it's not there for you, it's for other people around you. So other people become the recipients of my love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, gentleness, and all the things that I'm experiencing in Jesus. Now they get to partake in that fruit, and I'm living the life of Christ. And as I'm living the life of Christ, then you're having impact upon the lives of others. And you're very, you become very spiritually sensitive to where people are and how God might use you to move them along the continuum of where he wants them to be. But if I'm, listen, if Jesus is just like 
out there in my relationship somewhere, I'll guarantee you, I'm not spiritually sensitive because I'm not in tune with Christ. I'm not in tune with the Holy Spirit. I'm not listening to what the Holy Spirit has to say. And so uh, I'm just kind of moving through life. And then we come to Pergamum, because here's the next downhill slide, is now I start compromising in areas of my life. I just start compromising some things in my life, maybe not big things at first, Maybe they're very small things, but they grow and progress over time. And then the church at Thyatira, I start tolerating a lot of things in my life. And I share with my, in, in my men's class, it's called the cycle of self-deception. You, know, you find this all the way back in the very beginning with Adam and Eve when they sinned against God. The first thing they did, they felt guilt and condemnation, and therefore they hid them. They covered themselves up. They hid themselves from God. They were afraid of God. And when God confronted them, then all of a sudden they had to justify what they were doing and they had somebody else to blame for the reason they found themselves in the position they did. And that's the same cycle of self-deception that humanity lives in, right? We do things, we compromise, we tolerate some things, we feel maybe some guilt and shame over what we've done, so we, we try to cover it up, we hide it, we don't want other people to see it. And, and, and if I do get caught, then I'm, I've got all the reasons in the world is to justify why I've done this, why it's okay, or to blame somebody else. It's not my fault. It's their fault. If it hadn't been for them, I would have never done that. I would have never gone there. I would have never done that. And so we live in this cycle of self-deception, and we begin compromising and tolerating things in our lives. And here's Sardis. Over time, your heart begins to get hardened. Your conscience begins to be seared. And... Uh, then the Holy Spirit has a real hard time even getting through to you. And the church of Philadelphia, you remember that was the church of open doors? Yeah, when Jesus is at the center and I'm living surrendered to him, but when I'm not, the doors get closed. God can't use me. How can God use me when I'm on the run? Remember when prophet Jonah, when God told him to go to Nineveh and preach, what did he do? He went the exact opposite direction, as far away as he could get. Could God use him? As long as he's on the run, on the downhill slide, absolutely not. It wasn't until God brought him back around that he was able to use him once again and open that door of opportunity. And then we come to Laodicea. We just become spiritually indifferent, which means I just don't care anymore. So, okay. Yeah, 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 I go to church, yeah. And so lukewarm people... And there's a lot of characteristics, give money to charity and to the church as long as it doesn't impinge upon their standard of living. So yeah, you know, if I throw five bucks in the plate, that's good. Lukewarm people tend to choose what is popular over what is right when they're in conflict. Lukewarm people don't really want to be, be saved from their sin. They only want to be saved from the penalty and the consequences of their sins. They just want to remain in their sinful actions and lifestyle. Lukewarm people rarely share their faith. Lukewarm people will serve God and others, but there are limits as to how far they will go with their time, money, and energy that they're willing to give. And I, I could just go on and on. See, it's a real spiritual problem that we have. But when you get it to this point in your life, it's like you don't see it as a problem. You just see it as normal. And, and the way you stay in that normalcy is you just start comparing yourself with other people. Well, you know, I, I, I do more in so-and-so. I'm not as bad as that person. I don't do what they do. And, I'm a, and we get in this whole comparison game. And so Jesus has a very stern response to this church. He says, your lukewarmness, now your scripture, I don't know your translation, uh, he says, I wish you'd either hot or cold, but because you, 
you're not. Uh, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. The word spit literally means to vomit violently. It's a very graphic word in the Greek. It, you're, you're, it literally makes God sick at his stomach when people live in the context of lukewarmness. And so Jesus then diagnoses the condition of the lukewarm Christians. He says, first of all, in verses 15 and 16, you have become self-sufficient. Sometimes when people read this, and it says, he says, I know your deeds and you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either hot one or the other. Um, sometimes people read that and say, well, Jesus then, he would just like rather just be cold and indifferent and, and just like indifferent to the things of God or just like really be red hot on fire for God, but just don't be in between. That's not what he's saying at all. So you've got to look at the context of the city to which he is addressing. All right, so it's the city of Laodicea. The city of Laodicea was kind of on a plateau, and above it was the city of Hierapolis. Hierapolis was known for its healing mineral springs, hot mineral springs. And so um, people would travel from all over to go to this place. They believed that, you know, you know soaking in these hot mineral water uh, would bring healing to your body, and, and oftentimes that was the case. And so you have Hierapolis, then you have Laodicea, and below Laodicea, about six miles southeast, is Colossae. Colossae was known for its, its spring waters, very refreshing, rejuvenating kind of waters. And so the water flow table went from, um, you know, kind of like Hierapolis, come down into Laodicea through the aqueducts, and by the time it hit that city, the, the waters were just kind of lukewarm, right? So Nobody wanted to drink the water. It was tepid. It, was, it would be like when you go to a state park and try to drink out of their water fountain. You ever done that? It's like, it tastes like um, iron, right? So it's just like lukewarm. It's like, ah, oh, yeah. Um, and so you have lukewarm Laodicea, but then you have Colossae that has these, you know, these, these fresh spring waters. And so Jesus is, he's, he's addressing this church and He's saying, in essence, um, listen, you guys have become so self-seeking and so self-sufficient and uh, self-contained. Um, you, what I really want you to do, what I really want you to be, is an oasis for healing, or I, I want you to be um, an oasis for restoration, for redemption, like the, the cooling, fresh waters. Of the, of the living well of Jesus Christ. I don't want you living in between where you're not doing anything, right? You're not an oasis to anybody. You're not bringing any healing to anybody, and you're not, you know, you're not bringing any kind of restoration into people's lives. You're just kind of existing because you think that I don't have a need for anything, we don't have need for anything, and therefore we're just going to be self-contained, self-sufficient, and just kind of live our lives that way. And so they got in that rut of, yeah, we, we go to church every week. Yes, we, we, we worship, we do our thing, and then we just go home, right? And we come back, and we do it all over next week, and we just do our thing. We go home, we just come back the next week, and we do our thing, and we just kind of go home, and nobody's life is really being changed. I don't know. Uh, and so there's kind of just like in the middle. What, what I would like for our church to be known for is to be an oasis, right? That we would be an oasis where people can find restoration and refreshment 
through a relationship with Jesus Christ, right? So that's salvation. That's the power of gospel implemented upon a person's life where they are released from the shame and the guilt of their sin, and they can live in the freedom of Jesus Christ. So now we have the soul is, is still carrying around with it, and we did this whole series on shattered dreams, how the soul just carries around with it all of this baggage that needs to be released and so a person gives their life to Christ. Yes, they're saved. Yes, their sins have been forgiven. They're released from the shame and guilt of, of their sin, but they're still dragging around the same old stuff. Their mind needs to be renewed. Their emotional healing needs to take place. And so God wants the church also to be like the hot mineral oils where we can help people find the restoration of their soul. It's not enough just to get people saved and you know their ticket to heaven. God doesn't stop there. He says, now I've worked something in you. I want you to work that out. I want you to become conformed to the image of Christ, and I'm going to help you through this process of unloading all of the baggage, the hurt, the pain, the unforgiveness. Unload all of this stuff. Renew your mind. Tear down the strongholds that Satan has erected in your thought processes that keeps you, you know, from walking in the freedom of Jesus. That's what the church is to be, not one or the other, both and. But for most churches, um, yeah, we become one or the other. Some churches is just all about healing, and other churches just all about salvation. In other words, it's the difference between being a thermostat and a thermometer. You see, a thermostat in your home sets the temperature, right? You set the temperature, it regulates the temperature in the atmosphere of your home. A thermometer simply reads what the atmospheric temperature already is. God has called us to be thermostats. We are to set the temperature. We are to be the oasis. We are to be the ones who are out here on the front lines helping people find Jesus. Not just coming to church on Sundays, which is a wonderful thing because the Bible describes we need to come to church. We need collectively as a body of believers to be here on the weekends and to learn from the Lord and share with one another and pray for one another and, and, and you know, just encounter one another. That, that is very much a process of what we should be doing. But we have to go out into the world and be the thermostat. We are not going to be a thermostat if we duplicate if we're simply duplicating our lives as the world is already living. In other words, if there's no distinction or difference between the life of a believer and an unbeliever, you got a problem because that's not the life that God has called us to. And so we live, we live lives that are different. Around our, sometimes we, you know, we, we, do, we live one way in church on Sundays and Mondays is a whole different thing. Get around your friends, your relatives, or your coworkers and you act a totally different way other than... In, as, as a follower of Jesus, right? They, they couldn't tell your life any different from anyone else. That's not the life God's called us to. What we do on Sunday must match up with what we do on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. That's the calling God has given to us. And so that happens as Jesus remains centered within us and we are surrendering to Christ and we're surrendering our minds and our 
our, our hearts and our character and our lives over to him, and he's transforming us from the inside out. So we're no longer lukewarm. What we bring to those around us is like we're, we're like a living oasis where we can bring them to faith in Jesus and experience the living water, the cool, refreshing living water of Christ as in Colossae, and, and we can help people unpackage all of the bondage that they're in and all the hurt and the heartache so that we become a, an oasis of healing that helps them to experience the mineral waters of Hierapolis so that we're not just like being a lukewarm, okay, you got saved, great, now, wonderful, and then we just let people kind of figure it out on their own, and they don't. In the United States right now, for every person who gives their life to Christ, only 6% of them will still be walking with Jesus a year later. 6%. I've been in the Billy Graham Crusades. I was a counselor in his crusade in, in uh, Cleveland. I was one of the, actually, I was one of the supervising counselors there, and I saw thousands of people come and give their life to Christ. You want to know where those thousands came from? They came out of churches who were living lukewarm lives and never really, never really made that ultimate surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. They wanted the, the ticket out of hell but they never really wanted to surrender their life totally over to him and says, okay, God, you can have this part of my life and a little bit of section over here, but you can't touch this and you can't do that and you can't have that. And so we wonder why our, our lives don't basically change. We just keep living in the same cycle over and over of self-deception. God's called us to something higher than that. And God can do some incredible things when we move in that direction. There was a woman who um, came to our Sunday night um, teaching we had a, a few months back before the summer hit on um, the power of healing prayer. And uh, this woman has been walking with Jesus for many, many years. She's in her 70s. But she's always been tied down because of an incident that happened when she was a child. You know, she was raped and never talked about it, would never share it, stayed single all of her life. And, and here's what she said when, you know, in the very first session we had, I said, what do you want out of this class? And so, and I've heard this many times, people say, well, I just, I just feel like I'm blocked. I just feel like I, I just can't go any further with God and I can't hear God and there's just something blocking me and there's just something hindering me. And um, she said, I just, I just want to have a breakthrough. And so she went through that class and we prayed with her and over her. And a few weeks ago, um, someone in this church is a very dear friend with her, um, she shared with her, she says, hey, you know, we, our, our pastor was gone at our church. There was a couple of us there and said, hey, anybody here needs, you know, healing in their soul, need the restoration of their soul, but we're going to meet, you know, tomorrow night or whatever night it was, and there's like five people there. And so this individual, she, um, she was challenged, I want, you, I want you to write a letter to Jesus. And so they all did. They wrote their letters to Jesus, and then they, she, they said, now read it back to him. And as this person began to read that letter back, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit got a hold of her soul and brought absolute healing and restoration from something that she's been dealing with for over 70 years. And God gave her a breakthrough until now she, she finally even shared with somebody about what happened in her childhood for the first time ever, and she was doing it with tears of joy. And God has just given her release and healing this is what the church is to be. This is what God wants to do. 
if we just allow him to do it. We have to be the thermostat, not the thermometer. And so that's what Jesus wanted for this church. It's what he wants for his church because we are the answer to, to humanity's problem, or at least we have the answer. It's not we ourselves are the answer, but we have the answer, and it's found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's the second thing he says about his diagnosis of this church, its condition. He says, you've become self-deceived. You become self-deceived. What leads to this kind of mindset? You say, I'm rich. I have acquired wealth. I don't need a thing. But you do not realize you are wretched, poor, blind, and naked. God says, what you need to do is to come to me. You need to buy from me. You need to receive from me. But you're not seeing it that way. And so this is a city, for example, that became so wealthy uh, there was a major earthquake that hit this city in its past history, just about decimated the city as well as many others around it. The city is a part of the Roman Empire. And so Rome came to the assistance of these cities. Hey, we're going to give you federal money and help you rebuild your city. You know what Laodicea said? We don't need your money. We don't want any part of what you have to offer us. We are self-contained. We have wealth. We don't need anything from you. And so God says, what you need to do is you need to come to me. It's not just spiritual indifference, and we would say to God, we don't need to say yes, but we don't need to say no, but it's, it's about spiritual affluence. We think we're okay because we're doing pretty well, but sometimes we don't know the difference between making a living and making a life. There is a difference. So I, I can, in America, you know, we, we have a great deal of wealth in our country. We're one of the wealthiest nations in the world. And if I don't have the money, I can put it on credit card. I can extend my debt. I can do all kinds of things because we're looking for something. We're trying to make, um, we're trying to make a living instead of, and even beyond that, instead of making a life. There is a difference. And so let me give you an example out of an individual's life. This guy's an executive, and uh, he was looked up by some headhunters, he was offered a great big promotion, a job change, but it was going to require some things from him. Uh, he's going to spend a lot more time at the office, a lot more travel time away from his family. And so he thought to himself, you know what? But if I take this job, man, I'm going to make so much money that I, our family will be set for life. And so he accepted the position. And sure enough, you know, he's working a lot of hours. Um, you know, the, beds, the kids would go to bed at night. He didn't have time to tuck them in. Um, he and his wife never went to bed at the same time anymore. He's up doing his reports and just like really just diving into his work. And the reality is he's dealing with the thought, you know, I have a good life, but I could have a great life if I just had a little bit more. And so a little bit more was never enough. And so he jumps in and he thought, I'll turn this around in six months and then I'll, you know, I'll start getting back involved with my family. Well, six months lapsed into a year, two years, three years four years, five years down the road. And virtually he's a stranger to his family by this time. And one evening he's sitting in his office and all of a sudden he begins to feel some strange twinges in his chest. And then it felt like his chest was on fire and he was in the midst of a massive heart attack. And in that moment, there was a sense of blinding clarity to him. He began calculating 
have, has what I've done over the last six years, has it really been worth it? You say, did you make up that story? No, Jesus did in Luke chapter 12. He talked about a guy, it was just enough was never enough, and it was more work and more work and bigger barns and bigger barns and bigger barns, and that night his soul was required of him, heart attack, however, God t- however he was taken out of this world, and the assessment of Jesus was that man was an absolute fool. An absolute fool. And so this executive, out of nowhere, he dies. People walk by his casket. They view him as looking so peaceful. But you know, death has a way. Death has a way of shutting everything down, doesn't it? And everything is looked upon differently. And everything you acquired over that time is left to your widowed wife and her future husband. And Jesus would say, what a fool. You made a living, but you failed at making a life. Don't let the same thing happen. So this word selection that Jesus uses, like a skilled surgeon with a scalpel, he says, here's here's the problem is you are rich, right? You have this cash flow. Because Laodicea was a banking center for Asia. And the city, was again, was just so wealthy, they didn't even need any help from Rome at all. And then he goes on to say, you've got clout because they, have this, they, they developed this glossy black wool, and so they had this textile industry that was bringing them all kinds of, of, of wealth. And uh, it was like the Gucci of their day, you know, Armani, Prada of their day. I mean, they, they were just selling this black wool and the, out through the textile industry and, and money again is flowing into them. And he, they have this, he, he says, you've got this eye salve you need. Well, they had a medical center that had developed an eye salve that could cure many eye diseases. And so Jesus is pulling right out of their existence. Hey, you guys think you don't need anything? You know, you've got all of this money and you've got all this industry going on, and you've got the cure for these uh, eye ailments happening in, inside uh, you know, uh, of your community. But I'm telling you, I'm telling you, my assessment is, I'm counseling you, I'm telling you that you're really wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. So I'm counseling you to what? Buy from me gold that is refined by fire, so that you may become rich and wear clothes that will cover your shameful nakedness and sad that put on your eyes so that you can actually see what is going on. And so Jesus was saying, who are you deriving your identity from? Who are you pulling your identity from? You don't think you need me? You're foolish. You need me, and you need me a lot. And so the results, this results in God becoming sick due to what? Spiritual indifference. That's what makes God ill, spiritual indifference. It's like, you know, God, I just really, really don't need you. Because that's where the downhill slide will take you to, is that you will eventually become spiritually indifferent to the Lord, take him or leave him. If you really need him and you're really in a place where you just absolutely have no other alternative 
okay, God, I'll call you up. But until then, I'm on my own. This, this isn't the center of my life. My identity is the center of my life, and my identity has been built around what I wear, what I drive, where I live, where I go to school, my degrees, and all the other things in life that we think are going to make us happy and bring fulfillment into our lives. And Jesus says, you're a fool if, you, if that's what you think. So he describes, number three, the cause of becoming lukewarm Christian, and he says the cause is you see yourself as self-sufficient. It's called the orphan spirit. If it's going to be, it's up to me. Many of you developed that spirit in childhood, right? So you may have, you may have been raised in a family where everything, you felt like everything was dependent upon you, right? So I, I'm in a single parent home. I have four sisters. I'm the only male. I heard all the time, you're the man of the family. You're the man of the family. So I felt like I had to be the sufficient one, the self-sufficient one, right? So I had to do for it, whatever. And so early on, you know, I, I, I'm working, I'm, I'm mowing grass, I'm doing whatever. I, nobody's buying my bicycles. Nobody's helping. I'm buying my clothes. I'm buying my, everything that I, I really thought that I wanted as a child. And my mom couldn't afford it, so I work, 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 and it's all dependent upon me. It's all dependent upon me, and I've got to make sure that everybody's happy, and I've got to make sure everything's fixed in the house, and I've got to do this, and I've got to do that. And so you can grow up in that atmosphere in which you come out of, like even when you come into a relationship with Jesus, it's like, but Jesus, I, 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 I don't have the patience to wait on you. I, I don't, I don't, I don't see where you're doing anything in this situation, so therefore I will, I will take everything under, in control of myself. And if we were totally honest with ourselves, most of us are control freaks. And so we become self-sufficient instead of Christ-sufficient. And so Jesus details the cure for over overcoming lukewarmness. So I got five minutes here. I told you I was going to get you out early. Here it is. He says, repent of your pace. He says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Repent of your pace. We, we are a culture that just moves faster and faster and faster all the time. You want to know why this relationship gets set aside on the back burner? Why you leave your first love? Because you're just too stinking busy. It's all about priorities, right? I prioritize what is really important to me, just like you do. If you let somebody else have your calendar, you'll never get to do what you want to do or what you need to do. You cannot let somebody else control your calendar. So your time with Jesus, I told our men, my time with Jesus, it is a scheduled time like I would schedule a doctor's appointment because if I don't, that day will get away from you, right? The day's gone. Oh, man, I just, I, okay, Lord, I'll do better tomorrow, and that's, I'll be do better tomorrow, and I'll do better tomorrow. The pace of America in USA Today found a Domino, Domino's pizza driver from the 1980s. And they did an interview with him. Here's why. Because in the 1980s, Domino's Pizza had a slogan. If we can't get this pizza to you in 30 minutes, it's free. How many of you remember that? So this guy's now in his 50s. And they ask him, what was it like to be in a, 
you know, a pizza delivery guy for Domino's back in the 80s when they had that slogan. He said it was amazing. He said, man, I had that big Domino's thing up on top of my car. He said, people treated me like I was an ambulance or a fire truck because they knew the slogan. So they'd like pull off the side of the road and let me, you know, go through. And, and so the CEO of, Do- of Domino's, uh, when the business began growing and expanding at a rapid rate because of this slogan and the, and the promise they were made, he says, we don't sell pizza, we sell delivery. But if you ever ate Domino's back in the 1980s, you'd know that's true because the pizza was horrible. <laughs> Jesus says you need to repent of your pace. You need to repent of your hurry. You need to be zealous for me because, because I want to have time with you. He says, behold, I stand at the door and I'm knocking. And the reason I'm knocking, I want you to open the door and I want to come. Those words, I want to come in and I want to dine with you. I'm going to have fellowship with you. That word there is the, it's a kind of a weird Greek word. It's the word dakon. Uh, and so in the Greek meals, uh, so like you had a breakfast. Typically they ate very little for breakfast. Lunch was kind of like on the run. But in the Greek culture, when you have dinner, man, it is slow pace. Don't get in a hurry. It's time to fellowship. It is time to meet around the table and, and dine with the people around you and get to know them and talk about your day. And it's not a rushed thing. And this is what Jesus is saying. I don't want a rushed relationship with you. I want to come in. I want to dine with you. I, don't want, I want to relate with you. I want to have an intimate relationship and conversation that goes deep and beyond the surface stuff. And you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't do a lot of th- things right as a father, but one of the things I did do right is... is both Marla and I, we pretty much insisted when our kids were in school that we did as many meals around the dinner table as humanly possible because that's where conversation took place, deep conversation. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He says, I want you to, man, you, you got to set, you got to slow down the pace. And then he says, return to your zealous passion for me. Notice what he says, um, you're to Verse 19, those whom I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest. That word earnest um, means to be zealous. And in Scripture, oftentimes, that word is, is translated in what we would consider the negative, the word jealous. So like if I'm jealous, uh, it means that I have an irrational love for someone or something. And let's say uh, I I'm I'm a, have a big ego, and so you know I'm at a party, and somebody else has got a bigger ego than mine is telling their stories, and I'm jealous about you know all the attention they're getting, so I'm going to like one up them. You ever been around people who are always one upping you? You know, no matter what your story is, they got a bigger and better story to tell. And so um, that's that's a negative kind of jealousy. But I can also have a positive kind of jealousy where I'm 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 so in um, I'm so intense and so in love with this person. It's like I'm I'm just jealous over them. I don't I don't want anyone else stealing them away. I don't want any. You know, maybe you're that you, you, with your spouse. There's that jealous relationship where you don't want anything interfering with that relationship. This is what he's saying here. To put it this way, he's saying we are supposed to be zealous about being jealous for God. That this is the one relationship that we ought to pursue above and beyond every relationship and not a hurried relationship and and not like on the side burner, back burner, but uh, that we center some time through the course of our day around this relationship so that we keep that, that love relationship hot. You know, you skim on your relationships with people, what happens over time? Those relationships become cold, distant. 
You know, I have a lot of cousins, but we, we don't get together very often. You know when we usually get together? Somebody, when we're doing a funeral. How deep do you think those relationships are? Not very deep. If my relationship with God is built around times of emergency, there's not much there. And so Jesus says, I come to the door and I knock. Do you know there's three kinds of knocks? Have you ever been out, like, doing cold turkey evangelism? Like, you're going to go up to some stranger's door, and you're going to knock on their door, hoping that they answer so you can start talking to them, or you hope you really you're praying that they don't answer so you don't have to talk to them. And so we usually walk up. So we walk up, and we go. Like, nobody's going to hear that. And deep down inside, we don't want them to hear it because we don't want them to answer the door because I don't want to share my faith with them, right? So... All through seminary, I taught, you know, I was one of the CWT trainers. I took pastors out, and they, man, knock on that door like you mean it. So that's the second kind of knock, right? So a knock that you're trying to get the person's attention inside, but then there's a third kind of knock, and that's the knock of a family member, where they just knock on the door and just burst in at the same time, right? So this is family. Jesus is knocking on this door, now, I know this verse is oftentimes used for evangelism, like for an unbeliever, Jesus knocking on the door of their heart, wanting them to open the door and receive him. You can use it that way. But listen, in context, he's talking to the church. I'm trying to have fellowship with you. I'm trying to have a relationship with you. And I'm knocking on the door of your heart. But the, the door handle's on your side. It's not on his side. I'm asking you to open the door so that we can spend time together, so that we can relate together, so that... So that I can pour into you because you are the hope of the world. You're the one who's carrying the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're not sharing it, if you're not putting it out there, if you're not helping people find me, if you're not helping people grow in me, if you're not helping develop them and disciple them and send them out, this thing isn't going to work. And my entire plan A has no plan B. It has been placed into the hands of the church of Jesus Christ. It is up to us and nobody else. And that's what Jesus is saying to this church. Stop being lukewarm. I don't have time for that. That's not what I saved you for. It's not what I have equipped you for. I'm calling you to get out into the harvest. So here's the bottom line. You can either make excuses or you can make adjustments. We've got a thousand and one excuses as to why. Oh, Lord, I, I wish I could have a good, deep relationship with Jesus. But you don't understand, Pastor, I've got this, 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 this. There's not a person in this room or in this entire city who is not busy, as busy as you want to be. It's a matter of priorities. It's a matter of what's most important. It's not about me making a living. It's about me making a life. And a part of my life is that I'm a steward of everything God has given to me. My time, my talents, my gifts, my resources, I'm, I'm to leverage them for the purpose of expanding the kingdom of God. You and I have a choice on how we're going to do that. And so God says and challenges us, I want you to live, I want you to live jealously, with a zealous passion, be jealous over me, be so passionate and jealous over me that this, this relationship always remains the number one priority of your life because everything in life flows out of this one relationship.
everything. Let's pray together.